0: Today to our heavenly bridegroom is the church espoused. For as much as in Jordan Christ hath washed away her iniquities, sages with their offerings hasten to the royal marriage, and with water turned to wine the guests are regaled. Alleluia. So reads the traditional office antiphon for the Feast of the Epiphany. Please be seated. It is often explained from the pulpit that the word epiphany means a manifestation of God specifically the manifestation of God in the face of his fully divine and fully human Son, Jesus Christ, and the voice of the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove resting upon him and so revealing the Trinity. But what is not always made clear and what the ancient antiphon connects for us is that these classic gospel lessons for the season of Epiphany the gifts of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, and the wedding at Cana, what they're specifically highlighting or manifesting is Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom come to summon his bride, the church, to that great marriage feast, the reunion of heaven and earth, the true climax of the whole biblical drama. So when Christ appears in this morning's gospel lesson on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to call his first disciples, they simply toss their nets, leap out of the boat, and follow. James and John even leave poor Zebedee, their bewildered father, behind in the boat all alone. It's the sort of impulsive and dramatic scene you'd be more likely to expect from a romance movie than from the gospel. You know the classic trope, where in the heat of the moment the passionate young protagonist runs after the mysterious and dangerous young man who's just appeared in town, with the frantic parents or ex-fiancé, or soon-to-be ex-fiancé, shouting after them in the background. Remember when you still had that kind of bravado? when you might just have done something so reckless and thrilling on a moment's notice with life-altering consequences? Alas, for most of us sitting here these days, those days are long behind us. That's why we have romance and action flicks so that we can at least vicariously experience the rush and excitement of vigorous youth from time to time. But what was it that gave These four men, the courage to drop everything on a moment's notice, to leave their families behind, and to follow Christ when so many others in their generation went away sorrowful or hesitated when they heard the Lord's call? Was it merely the rash, impetuous boldness of their youth, or was it something more? Well, we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that at least some of these disciples had been prepared for this moment by Jesus' best man, that friend of the groom, John the Baptist, who cried out in witness to Jesus as we heard last week, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But whether or not they had been disciples of John, they would have been as every faithful young Israelite, armed and prepared equipped with a solid playlist, the 150 greatest hits of the sweet psalmist of Israel, King David, otherwise known as the Psalter. I imagine that day they might have been humming one of the Psalms, or one of the Psalter's greatest love songs as they cleaned their nets by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Psalm 27. The psalm that our choir so beautifully chanted for us just a few minutes ago. Its words are sung in the voice of Holy Church, the bride. As we pray them, they teach us how we can approach Christ, how to passionately seek after intimacy with Him. Listen The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? The three opening verses of our psalm give voice to our baptismal confidence in the Bridegroom who has saved us by his grace. As St. Paul says, he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And elsewhere, if God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord himself now, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name means God saves, is our light and our salvation the strength of our new regenerate life. And our past sins, the world, the flesh, and the spiritual enemies of our soul are drowned like Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. Death itself has been trampled over by Christ's death. Whom then shall we fear? This confident recounting of the Lord's salvation And protection leads to our proper response as Christians, single-hearted, undiluted desire for God, what the Bible calls purity of heart. And as Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One thing have I desired of the Lord, which I will require, even that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to visit his temple. I find the Greek Septuagint actually has a better translation than the Miles Coverdale version for this verse. It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, which I will pursue. Hold a pin on that. This, this one thing, this one desire, that's the proper work of Christian prayer. It's not to convince God to give us all the stuff that we want. He doesn't need changing or convincing, and He knows what, he, what we need anyway. Its proper work is to transform us into people who desire just one thing Christ, and for everything and everyone to be found in Him. And like everything in the Christian life, it is a paradox. We both ask to receive the grace of God as the gift, which it is, but we also set ourselves to actively pursue it with everything we have as we are drawn by that tractor beam of God's beauty, the fair beauty of the Lord, and to intimate abiding with Him. And then this deepening relational intimacy with God leads us where else? but the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, the Eucharist, the altar, the source and summit of the Christian life. Therefore, the psalm continues, shall I offer in his dwelling an oblation with great gladness, I will sing and speak praises unto the Lord. But here at this point, after verse seven, the psalm takes a turn as the voice of the bride goes from addressing us all publicly to speaking directly to the bridegroom. And we overhear her passionate pleadings with him. My heart hath talked of thee, seek ye my face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Oh, hide not thou thy face from me, neither cast thy servant away in displeasure. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord taketh me up. These are the words of a lover. They're just as much at home in the Song of Solomon or on the radio, for that matter, as they are in the Psalms, in the Bible. But the true lover of God diligently seeks after the Lord where he is to be found. In humility, she submits herself to his instruction and learns by experience to wait upon his saving help. That's why the psalmist continues, "'Teach me thy way, O Lord, "'and lead me in the right path because of my enemies.'" I should utterly have fainted, but that I believe verily to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. O tarry thou the Lord's leisure, be strong and he shall comfort thine hearts and put thou thy trust in the Lord. Total trust in God, single-hearted passion for him, and humble teachability. These three things the psalm teaches us in order to approach God, to find intimacy with him, total trust in God, single-hearted desire or passion for Him, and humble teachability. If only I had known this as a teen, how much trouble could I have spared myself going through those tumultuous years? But instead, I went the way of the rebel and set myself against the face of God. How many of you have had a rebellious teen in your life? At some point a wayward, prodigal son or daughter. You can keep, uh, (laughs) maybe that teen was you. Most of us, most all of us know at least one these days. And if not, we'd be seeing them all here in church this morning, wouldn't we? (laughs) Well, why do teens rebel? Why do they rebel? I asked Father Rodriguez this, uh, this question earlier this week to see what he thought. And he said, well, they see the injustice and the hypocrisy in the world, and they're naive and passionate enough to think they can do something about it. I like that. I think that's about right. Or else, maybe, they've come to the stage in life where it's time to begin their own story and discover who they are outside of the identity of their parents and of their elders and their culture, but they don't understand your values, or else they don't see you representing them, living them out faithfully and authentically so they turn against them. A lot of the issue, honestly, though, is with our culture's script about how this passionate, youthful energy ought to be expressed. What does that script look like? And We've all heard it before. We've seen it countless times in all the media that is pitched and portrayed to our young people. What does it say? Use that energy of yours for sin, because it feels good. The world is meaningless anyway, or, and even if God did exist, you should hate him because he's cruel and repressive, or else you can safely ignore him, because a loving God could never hold you to account for your actions." All you need to do is overthrow those repressive and outmoded cultural institutions and natural law and reason, whatever else is holding you back from embracing your fantasies, so long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's how it goes. But it's no surprise that this narrative is tempting, because it puts you in the place of having all the power and none of the responsibility, a teenager's dream. I'm telling you, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. One of the big things going around when I was in high school was the Twilight series. Does anybody remember those books and those movies? You know, and that, that whole fad, that whole phase with uh, dreamy vampires, right? That was a big thing for a while. And, of course, a few years before that, it was uh, Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, it's the, the, the dark, scary... Uh, A young young man calling you away. But I think falling in love with vampires is actually the perfect image for our current cultural script around teen rebellion. The obvious problem with falling in love with vampires, of course, is that you might love the vampire very well, but they love you like a person loves a cheeseburger. (laughs) It's something to consume and then throw away when they're finished. Tragically, I think it's increasingly the case that many of our youth are no longer even aware of a different script, aware that there could be something else, someone who gives their blood for them rather than the other way around. The only place they know to spend their youthful passion is on things that bleed them dry or in self defeating causes. Case in point, just last year, a former Disney Channel teen celebrity released an album that made the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Her lyrics speak with deep vulnerability at first about her history of abuse, mistreatment, and addiction through a corrupt entertainment industry, nearly leading to her death, and in fact leading to the death of several of her close friends. But then, those same... Hollywood secular voices are the only ones there to pick up the pieces, and they convince her that the reason for all of her pain and sorrow, the injustice that she suffered, all of it was Christianity and its bigoted and repressive ethics, despite the fact that her only past experience with the Christian faith is a few visits to a megachurch with her mom as a kid. All that energy and desire was then channeled into angry, anti-Christian, transgressive, and nihilistic hedonism, the same rebellion that left her empty and half-dead the first time. I'm afraid that our young people don't know any other way. If only somebody had been there to tell her about Christ, what he's really like. But centuries, even millennia ago, back when the prevailing culture was staunchly pagan or when the Christian status quo had become too comfortable, all of that passionate teen energy used to be in the church's favor. Back then, the hip thing to do to stick it to the man was to become a committed Christian, And to these young people's great delights, they found the one thing capable of quenching their bottomless thirst for adventure, justice, truth, glory, and love, the fair beauty of the Lord, face-to-face intimacy with Him. This was so much so the case, in fact, that teenagers who fell head over heels in love for Jesus and followed Him against their parents' wishes Formed its own subcategory in the hagiographies, the collected stories of the saints, with such illustrious names among them as Saints Barbara, Catherine of Alexandria, Perpetua, Francis and Clare of Assisi, and Thomas Aquinas. I encourage you to look up their stories some other time and see for yourself. They lived by a different script than the world around them, they were formed by a different playlist. So, what if we could flip the script on teen rebellion in our culture again? I think we've come to that point where if you really wanted to be edgy and countercultural today, it wouldn't be through full body tattoos or piercings or even changing your pronouns, but by repenting and becoming a committed Christian, a follower of Jesus. I want you to do a little imaginative exercise with me this morning. Let's imagine that rebellious youth or teen in your life. And what if, just what if, instead of whatever they've been doing that's been making you anxious or keeping you up at night, what if all that energy was redirected to its proper end? What if they were sneaking out at night to come to benediction with their friends to gaze upon the most holy sacrament Or imagine they're hogging the shower in the morning because they're chanting through the whole psalter in an ice bath. (laughs) Or suppose you caught them selling your TVs and your iPads on Facebook Marketplace to be able to give money to the poor. Let's be honest, you're probably better off anyway in that case. Or if you discover they were planning to run away and join the monastery or the convent. Or what if they were demanding you let them go on mission to Saudi Arabia Arabia or Afghanistan in secret hopes that they might attain to the glory of martyrdom as the saints of Christian past? It might sound ridiculous now, but this sort of thing has happened before, really. And I believe it could happen again. I have to be honest, though, as a new parent, thinking about Cademan, my seven-month-old son, growing up to do things like that someday as a teen uh, unsettles me a little bit, especially the whole martyrdom piece. You know, maybe part of me would, be, would just prefer if he, if he went through that phase in college, frat boy life, went a little crazy, but then settled down to an easy, boring desk job rather than risk his life for Jesus. I have to leave these things in the Lord's hands and trust him with my baby boy because he knows how to take care of him better than I do. Because I want to see the script behind our youth culture flip, and I hope that you do too. That's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to be here. I believe that Trinity is creating the kind of school and church environment and culture that both teaches and models a profound countercultural love of Jesus Christ that can change things for the better. Supporting Trinity's mission in this area is a big way that you can help. But no matter how good the preaching and the teaching and even the liturgy are here at Trinity, the young people in your life I never know that there's another script that they can follow, another playlist that can form them if they don't see it lived out in you. And if you don't tell them that everything that they are seeking in the world, sucking their life away, can only truly be found in Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. As someone who was formerly a godless teen myself, a large part of why I'm standing here is because my in laws were Psalm 27 level crazy for Jesus. And I thought, okay, that's really weird, but maybe there might just be something to this whole Christianity thing after all. And that was the beginning of a great adventure. We can't let the young people around us hit that stage in life where they're ready to start their own adventure and to change the world for good, and only the vampires are waiting for them. You know, 4,000 years ago, God called the 75-year-old Abraham to set out from his dad's basement on a grand adventure that would change everything. So maybe it's not too late for you. The bridegroom is calling, friends. Will you get out of the boat? Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.